0: You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy.
1: Hi, I'm Olivia Pelling, and I make and repair violin family instruments for a living.
0: Can you name another violin that's not a Stradivarius? Well, now you can add Pelling to your list. Olivia Pelling is a luthier based in Ottawa. Growing up with her mother and stepfather who themselves were successful luthiers, Olivia embraced stringed instruments early on. She's since gone on to make her own harp, win a fiddling scholarship, and invent the Twitter violin. Here's my chat with Olivia Pelling. Who are you and what do you make for a living?
1: I'm Olivia Pelling and I make and repair violin and family instruments. So violins, violas, cellos, double basses. I don't make double basses, but I do repair them. And I do take care of bows. I don't make bows. That's a different art altogether. But I do rehairing and and um, some, some repairs on bows. How did you get into
0: making violins and violin-related items?
1: So it's a bit of a long story. I started playing violin when I... Well, it actually starts with me wanting to learn a new instrument. I started playing when I was nine. Um, My mom was my first teacher. Uh, I played violin till I was 15. Actually, I still play violin. But when I was 15, I said to her, I wanted to play viola um, because I like the hermit.
0: What's the difference between violin and a viola? I don't know the difference.
1: The viola uh, is held the same way. Uh, It's bigger and... Um, it's the alto voice. So it gets a lot of harmonies. It's a bit lower sounding. It just, it doesn't go quite as high and it goes one string lower. So it's the harmonizer and it has some beautiful solo pieces, but it's most often the harmonizer.
0: So you made the switch.
1: I made the switch, but then years passed. Uh, I was in university. I took a Celtic studies class and happened to win a scholarship for an assignment I did, which was actually writing a song. And uh, with the scholarship I, I I got, I went to Scotland and took a fiddling course and a step dancing course. And ironically, my fiddling class was run by Buddy McMaster, who's Canadian.
0: <laughs> oh, you went all that way just to learn from a Canadian?
1: Sure. Yes, makes sense. <laughs> but when I was there, I at one of the sessions that was that was happening a lady let me play her harp and I I totally fell in love with the harp and wanted to learn how to play the harp. And I came home and said to my mom and stepdad, I want to learn how to play the harp, but I can't afford to buy one. (laughs) And my, my stepfather was maker and he actually, my mom was apprenticing sort of under him. So I had, I had been seeing my mom learning how to make violins. And, uh, he said to me, well, why do not you just make one? And I paused, <laughs> I thought about it, and he says, I'll give you the wood. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, we, we knew that there was an Ontario College of Art and Design had this uh, stringed musical instrument making evening class that Philip Davis, a local luthier to Toronto, ran, and you could make whatever you wanted. Most people were making guitars and violins. It was the only one making a harp, but... Two and a half years later, <laughs> because I was finishing an undergrad and then and then did a, a second uh, Bachelor of Education, I finished my harp. And when I, by the time I finished my harp, I, I really wanted to do more, but we didn't at the time really have anywhere to learn the making in more detail here. And I married and we moved to Los Angeles. So I ended up teaching. I was a qualified teacher. And from there, we moved to England and teaching in England. Uh, I was supplier or substitute teaching in England the first year I was there. And after the first six months in inner city London, I said to my husband, "I don't think I'm going to survive <laughs> if I keep doing this." <laughs> and he said, "Well, what do you what what do you want to do?" And I I started looking around and thinking, "I'm in Europe. I could I could find a violin making school." And in fact. London had two at the time, and the school I chose ended up being uh, one that had a very hands-on program, and they taught both making and repair, which is which is quite unusual. Um a lot of schools are teaching only making. So I went there, and actually, before I went there, I called around a fair bit and said, "Would anybody take me as an apprentice because that's the traditional old style of how you get into this career?" and everybody said to me go to school call me back when you're done
0: <laughs> so <laughs> why why do you think that that's the case like had they wanted to see some commitment to it on your own before they decided to invest in you
1: i think so but i think i realize having having done it that way and now running my own business i can completely understand why they would say that because it, it takes it takes a lot of time and effort to learn and to teach somebody how to make it what i want so Yes. If they're running a business that's a regular full-time business, it would, it would be a lot of additional time and effort on their part to have an apprentice that, that knows nothing.
0: Right. Better to have them come in with at least some knowledge. Yep. And then they can sort of expand upon that with them. Yes. Yeah. So you're in London now, but going all the way back, why did you have to go through all of these steps like why didn't your dad just teach you how to do it? I mean he he was a, he was a luthier too, right?
1: Good question. I didn't was he teaching s- you a lesson
0: in life or something like
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> no. I didn't live in the same city. He lived in Muskoka and I lived in Toronto. I was going to school in Toronto and so unfortunately wasn't able to go to him to do an apprenticeship. He didn't he didn't actually live very much longer after that. He he got cancer and and died.
0: And your mother has since continued the business, though your dad. She business, has. Right? Yeah. She has. So she completed her training, became a full Jedi, and fought Darth <laughs> Vader. Wait, I'm mixing two things up now. This is. <laughs> so so and and how did she complete her her training then? I mean, did did, did you with, step well, with shop? him? Yeah, with him. Yeah. So so you're in London and you decided to enroll then, in in yes. the courses, and from there, where did it, where did it take you?
1: Well, it was actually normally a three year program, and. By the time I finished my first year, my husband said, "I've got one year left here, and uh, I want to have my job move back to Canada." <laughs> so I said, "Okay." So I went and talked to my teacher and said, "Is there any way I can do the last two years in one?" And he looked at me and he was like, "Are you serious? That's a lot of work." <laughs> and I said, "Yep, I'm serious." <laughs> so I crammed in two years. Talk about um, not good work-life balance. <laughs> It was for a minimal amount of time.
0: And then you made your way back to Canada then?
1: I did. I got an apprenticeship here in Ottawa. And I, I worked at that for a year and then started my own business. And my husband was super supportive. <laughs> he was sort of the one behind me saying, you can do this. Go on, let's go. I'll go do a website and we will <laughs> get it all started. <laughs> Thank goodness, because I have no technical, uh, savvy knowledge, website-wise. Uh, <laughs> and that was in 2009 that I started my business. And, right, um, so
0: 12 years later, here you are. Yeah. Still in business. So you, you clearly know how to make a good violin, I'm assuming.
1: I do. However, I, I'm very thankful that I was taught repair, both both in the program in London and through my apprenticeship here, because repair is bread and butter, for most makers, and until we get our name known as a maker for whatever instrument or for whatever reason, repair work is really solid work. And actually, I love repair work because it keeps me on a regular routine, um, <laughs> regularly accountable to clients who need their instruments back. and And I love being able to keep instruments going. And I hope that people in the future will keep my instruments going. <laughs> well,
0: I was gonna say when you make an instrument, when you make a, a violin, that's an incredibly long process from scratch, right?
1: It is a long process. How yes. long? If I
0: ordered one today, when am I when am I gonna get my violin so I can begin disturbing my neighbors?
1: If I if I were <laughs> working solidly on it and only doing that, at this point I could get it done within like two and a half, three months, four months, wow. maybe stretching it depending on what the with the drying like but yes, it's a good solid chunk of time. I usually say longer because what I'm doing is repair work uh, as well. I have a regular clientele who count on me for repair work, and uh, so I, I value them, and I want to make sure that I have time to to take care of their their needs too.
0: Tell me about your clientele. I mean, who makes up the violinists in your area? I mean, are they, are they kids? Are they pros? I mean, I only know people who are either professionals in orchestras who play violins, or I know children who are scraping around on those things <laughs> and nothing in between. Who comes to you?
1: Yeah, it's both and every, everyone in between. Um, so it's, and Ottawa's got a fantastic community of, of musicians. Not only have the, the NAC, but there are loads of community orchestras and there are loads of schools for little kids learning. There, there's the whole fiddle community here. It's a, there's a wide variety of, of musicians and performers and ages, and, and it's great. I, I like being able to, to serve a wide variety of, of people.
0: You got your start doing repairs. That's how you got your foot in the door. That's how you got known in the community initially. And then over time, you became known as somebody who makes custom violins, your own violins. How did you know you were going to be able to do this professionally and maintain and sustain
1: yourself this way? Honestly, probably partly because my my stepfather gave me that example. That was his career. And that's that's what he, he did. But also just because looking at Ottawa as a market, it's a big place. It's a big city. It's grown a ton since we've moved here. And it's got a wide variety of musicians. And some schools still offer uh, stringed musical instrument programs. So, uh, so there's enough work.
0: Where are you finding customers? I mean, where are people coming from? Are they pros? Are they those beginners? Are there lifelong you know, violinists who just play in their houses? Because you don't really see people, you know, pull out a violin around a campfire, generally speaking. Usually it's a guitar. So who are these people? Where are they coming from?
1: All of the above. Pros, teachers, lots of children parents <laughs> who bring their children's instruments um, there are loads of amateur musicians people who have who have a jo- a day job doing other things but but love music in their free time and that could be all sorts from from classical to fiddle to jazz to rock to whatever musical style doesn't matter, right, if, if you, can, you can play whatever you want on the, on the instrument.
0: So When you started making your own instruments, how did you come to be known for a specific instrument? What is, do you have like a, a specific style of violin? I mean, how does anybody even know the difference? I look at a violin, I see a violin. I wouldn't know a Stradivarius from a not Stradivarius. I don't even know another type of violin.
1: So what makes your violins different and your own? Good question. My violins. Uh, so, in the in the world of violin making, the world of violin making is very traditional. Actually, uh, there is an awful lot of copying that happens, um, and the more that they can look like an original Stradivarius, or or an original Guernarius or Berneris, or an original Amati, the, the better. The better it is. That's often the way in our in our world. So some of my instruments just look like a copy of something else. I don't actually. I I haven't been what we call antiquing, which basically means beating up your violin.
0: <laughs> oh, really? Like people actually want new violins that are old-looking and old-feeling?
1: Definitely. So you yes. beat the
0: hell out. How do you beat up a, a violin in a way that doesn't break it but makes it antique?
1: <laughs> it's it's sandpaper, rocks, sticks, um, really? anything that yep. do you not take offense
0: to that a little bit i mean you work so hard to make this thing and then they're asking you to beat the hell out of it
1: to be honest that's why i haven't done very much of it because i can't handle it (laughs) (laughs) and in in honesty it will get all those marks on its own with use over time but uh yes there is a whole world of antiquing but mine aren't antiques usually they look like a, a new instrument But I think more of what I've become a little bit more known for in town are two things. One, for making smaller, smaller sized violas. Violas uh, in the past are notoriously huge. And so you need to be tall in order to play them. But there are more and more musicians who are shorter wanting to play viola. However, they can't reach it to play it and they hurt their neck and shoulder. Then there's no point in playing it. So finding a way to to bring those down inside so that they're comfortable for people of smaller stature to play. And then the other thing that has been purely by chance and something that that happened only because a musician came to me and said, uh, I'd like to learn play Viola de mori. Would you be interested in making me one? And I said, uh, pardon. <laughs> what was that you said? <laughs> Just told me a little bit about it. I hadn't known much about it at all. A viola de mori is a Baroque instrument that has either 12 or 14 strings. Half of the set goes, runs underneath the fingerboard and just rings sympathetically while the tops that are being played.
0: Oh, so it's actually inside and under the neck.
1: Yes. So actually Norwegians have a, have a violin that's got sympathetic strings with regular four strings. They call it the hardanger. This instrument kind of went out of style and kind of for a good reason. It's really difficult to play, like really difficult to play.
0: What makes it so hard to play?
1: It's tuned to an open chord, usually D. But that means that you can be limited in what you want to play on it with that tuning. So then they can change the tuning. But once you change the tuning, then that means that the note under your finger has just changed.
0: Do you actually tune the under strings at the same time? Like are they tunable underneath as well?
1: Yes. Yes. They're all tunable, yes. So it's a it's a total brain game to play this instrument. Like it's a real mental workout. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it went out of style just because it's really challenging to play. But I had this lady ask me, would you be interested in making me one? And so I got back to her and I said, yeah, I think, I think I'd be interested in doing that. Then the challenge was to find plans for it. And there really aren't. There are plans for violins and violas and cellos everywhere, easily accessible. For violas de mori, no.
0: <laughs> so where did do you, do you actually find it then?
1: So I ended up actually, I contacted... A musician in Toronto, Tom georgie who played at the time, he's now retired, but he played at the time with top musique. And he's like world renowned for being a Viola de Mori player. And he said, Yeah, I have a Viola de Mori. You're welcome to come take a look at it. And actually, two of my friends here have ones as well. And you can just come. And so I spent hours in his, in his house. He very kindly let me spend hours in his house measuring and measuring and like just taking notes and
0: taking it studying. apart, putting it back together. <laughs> sure he would not let you do that. Oh, not that far. So in terms of some strange instruments that you've been asked to make, there's something that keeps coming up and I've got to ask you about it. You made something called a Twitter violin. (laughs) What the hell is a Twitter violin? I can't find this. I know what Twitter is. I know what a violin is, but I have no idea what a Twitter violin is.
1: Right. So this was an interesting collaboration with my husband. Maker Faire had come to Ottawa and asked both my husband and I to to have tables. Now, my husband's a scientist. (laughs) So that's the cool thing. One of the cool things I think about Maker Faire is that it could be any, you can be any sorts of maker over there. But my husband said to me, let's do something together. And I was like, okay, what? So we came up with this idea to make a Twitter violin. So basically he was working, he was learning Raspberry Pi and working with programming Raspberry Pi at the time. And so we had linked to seven birds that were uh, seven Canadian birds. Um, some of whom were on the endangered list. Some of them are little concern and some of them, very high concern like the whooping crane and so he programmed this raspberry Pi so that uh, he uh, linked it with different frequencies that the violin plays and the more common frequencies he linked with the birds that were least concern endangerment wise and then the frequencies that were less played with the the higher concern so when you were playing it the beside it at the computer would both tweet information about the various birds plus the bird songs would, would come along. So you'd be playing along to bird songs and get information that was you. I'm
0: not going to lie, for this entire time you've been telling me that, I've pretty much been imagining just birds sitting on a Raspberry Pi because I have no <laughs> idea what Raspberry Pi is at all. But I'm assuming oh, I'm now sorry. it's a it's a computer program, right? It's yes, some sort it's a of little program.
1: tiny. Yeah, it's a little tiny. <laughs> it's a little tiny computer like chip. <laughs> I'm really technically, t- technologically uh, As you so, um, can
0: tell, you know, it's the blind leading the blind in terms of that. Yeah. I don't it's know like a computer. It's like
1: build your own little computer sort of thing.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Oh, so that's, so that's interesting. So you brought this to the, the Maker Fair, and you had people yes. playing it and, and getting sort of educated about the birds who are endangered and various forms of endangered. But I mean, first of all, people had to know somewhat, I guess, how to play a violin in order to. To trigger it, no? Or did they actually just kind of take a bow and scrape it across and see?
1: You could take a bow and scrape it across. Um, some people just asked me to play it. Some people... <laughs>
0: right. Some other Ask people just gave it
1: a go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what came from this then?
1: A lot of interest. So for me, actually, I made I made zero sales per se at the at the Maker Fair, but I, I gained a lot of uh, knowledge just about my business being there. So... That was, that was beneficial to me in, in, in terms of that. You
0: you know, it sounds like you and your husband are certainly supportive of each other and sometimes work together uh, on, obviously, very weird projects, but who works with you in your business? Is it just you? Are, are you running this solo?
1: I am running this solo. There have been a few times in the past few years when I've thought of hiring somebody to work with me because as my business has aged and grown, I've become more and more busy, but I haven't taken that leap yet.
0: What what would you be hiring someone to do? Would you want somebody to take over some of the business aspect of things, or are you looking for somebody to help you out in the studio with the actual luthiering? That's not a word.
1: Good, good question. Actually, I have done a little bit. Um, so I have I have had some professional collaborations in terms of I got my website redone. I have no capabilities of doing that, and so I, I hired that out. And then the other thing was on the second viola d'amore I made de Mo is known for these carved heads and I did the first one and <laughs> the, the lady the lady who owns it knit a little hat to go over the head <laughs> which is cute
0: like a, like on a golf club like you put a little yes yeah.
1: kind of it's cute but at the same time I think it kind of hides the head I don't think she's potentially not entirely happy I am not a figurative carver it was it was my attempt at figuratively Carving this space. But on the second instrument, second viola de Moray I made, the man who asked me to make it for him said, Oh, he was from Basel, Switzerland originally, and he wanted a basilisk for the length of the thing and, the, and for the head and wings with claws sorry, wings with claws coming around the side and all this elaborate carving. And I said, Wow. And he said, You know, you could get somebody to carve it for you, get carve carver for it. And I thought about it and I thought, But everybody looks at the carving first, like it's the thing that draws the attention. And then I thought, but actually, am I a figurative carver? I'm not really a figurative carver. <laughs> so surprisingly, I one of the guys in my orchestra, he came over and said to me, hey, I hear you're the, the violin lady. You do wood stuff. I make kayaks. <laughs> so we started chatting. And then he said, I just met one of the top carvers in Canada. I'd love to introduce you to him. So it turned out that through this connection of the connection, I met Phil White, who is one of the carvers for Canada's Parliament buildings. So I said to him, would you be interested in doing the carving of head?" So now actually he's done two different carvings. Um, so I've, I've realized I have my limitations <laughs> in my period of carving.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine he must have time on his hands. I mean, it's not like we're making a lot more Parliament buildings right now.
1: No, but actually he works full time actually at the Parliament buildings and he makes all sorts of stuff for them. I think he also does stone stone carving as well. So yes, it, it was not mine, but it's it's gorgeous. And the client my clients are happy with it. So
0: how do you sell your violins? I mean, I know you have a reputation. You've built it up over time, first with repair, then with your own specific designs. Do you have a store? I mean, is there a place that these instruments are actually displayed?
1: Yes, I'm a, I have a workshop. My workshop's in my home. And so I have I have instruments on display. I have both my own instruments and instruments that are old instruments, other instruments that are new instruments. I have a variety of instruments up for sale. Um, Some of them are mine, some of them are not. And so people can come and try them. Um, I'm by appointment. I was even, I was by appointment even before the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) But um, actually, since the pandemic has hit, I, I have, because my workshop's in my home, I have been meeting people outdoors, which has been an interesting challenge. And as it got cold, we moved to my garage.
0: Does that pose a problem for the instruments themselves? I mean, I imagine violins—you don't want to expose them to like the Ottawa winters and, and and that type of moisture and cold, right?
1: Correct. Yes. So I, I yes, I make sure my garage is heated, and we don't linger. Um, so sometimes, sometimes I would have clients in my in my workshop for forty-five minutes to an hour, depending on their needs and how chatty they were, <laughs> <laughs> and. And now that visits are a lot shorter. But to be honest, there's a, a standard procedure in the violin world where if somebody wants to try one of our instruments, they can. They just need to sign legal paperwork saying they're responsible for it while they have it. And um, there's a set amount of time, usually a week, and they can take it and try it in their own space uh, where they're comfortable playing and are used to hearing themselves. So that's actually one of the best ways for them to, to get a really good feeling as to whether they like an instrument or not.
0: You've mentioned that there is a long tradition in making violins and being a luthier. Is part of that tradition that there's a lot of women who make
1: these instruments? (laughs) Good question. No. Um, There were, believe surprisingly, there were women in the old masters' uh, shops, some wives and some daughters, but it's very rarely documented. There are more women now doing it, but it it is it is primarily a job perceived as a, a man's job, for the most part. I've had no challenges with that, and in in my early days in my business, I had a lot of women clients, uh, a lot of people saying, "Good for you! I want to support a woman who's doing this." And um, now I now I think I have a pretty good balance of men and women as clients and a favorite visit of mine was one where a dad brought his daughters and said i just want to show them that a woman can do this too and so it's, you know, it's 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 been a good job
0: a lot of instrument makers i mean certainly some of the big ones whether they're guitars or drums or uh or pianos they sponsor artists they give them their instruments to play and then and, and they become ambassadors for them is that something that exists in the violin world
1: that's a good question. Um, it does to some extent. I know that I know that my my stepfather did that, but but he did that a, quite a while ago, uh, like in the seventies and eighties. I don't know whether that's done as much now. I, I haven't heard of it as much, uh, to be honest. But I it could be that I just happened to ask that question
0: <laughs> with so much interest in replicating and trying to imitate these older models by the masters. What do you think it would take for a new master to emerge or for a new style for people to really latch onto and, and, and gain interest?
1: There are new masters. And and actually it's been wonderful in the last 15 years or so. There have been all sorts of tests that have been done, these blind playing tests, where they have a, a variety of old masters instruments and newly made instruments all in one test and they have these blind uh, ear tests and they they get feedback and their makers whose instruments in that um, setup modern makers whose instruments in that setup have come up on par with the old masters which is fantastic it's good for modern players if they can't afford to buy a, 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 an old master that's a million dollar violin they can actually afford to buy a modern master and it sounds beautiful so it's it's good both for for modern makers and makers.
0: Is it primarily the sound that is the defining factor that makes the old masters, or for that matter, any new masters? Is that is that the quality that everyone's looking for, or is it is it shape, is it feel, is it is it size and cut?
1: It's primarily sound, but it definitely is shape and feel as well. It has to be comfortable to play, and and there's provenance with the, with the old masters. There's there's nothing quite like Stradivarius, right? uh, it's, yeah, it it has to be well-made altogether, uh, comfortable enough to play, but, but definitely sound beautiful.
0: What sort of advice might you give to somebody who wants to get into the violin making game, wants to, uh, explore what it would be to make stringed instruments?
1: Um, I have a friend who's an artist and, uh, she's a painter. And she said to me when I, when I was talking about doing this, she said, just know it takes a long time <laughs> to get known. Have patience and keep persisting. Get, keep going because because it takes a long time. And she was right; it does it does take a long time to, to get your name known. Um, but so I think having patience and persistence is good. Do your research as to to where you're settling and to know whether that place has a has a community of musicians that that needs what you can provide and be open to suggestions and ideas that that you might not have thought of before like what i had a client who was a regular is a regular client for her instrument and she came to me and said excuse me for asking but um i have this little old box that my parents got in alberta they bought it from the Japanese in the internment camps in the Second World War, and it's completely fallen apart, and you're the only person I know who would do something with wood. Can you put it back together for me? And I'm like, yeah, I can put it back together for you. So it was an amazing, amazing opportunity to work on a little bit of Canadian history. Kind of gave me shivers.
0: I have to ask, do you still have your original harp?
1: I do, and I'm I'm still learning how to play it. (laughs) I, I was pretty good at christmas carols on it just recently <laughs>
0: nice olivia where can people find out more about you
1: uh, my website's findstrings.ca and i am on facebook i am on twitter i'm not very good at social media but <laughs> you, you can find me there too
0: <laughs> well thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living
1: thank you Ruby. it's
0: a pleasure Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit
1: Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.